FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have you all back with us again for another edition of Political Rewind. Today, I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, before we get the show started, just a couple of notes. Uh, I really appreciate the feedback I got from so many of you yesterday about the show we did with uh, Dr. Ray Kotwicki, the uh, chief medical officer of um, Skyland Trail, one of the country's best mental health facilities. Um our conversation about what we seem to be experiencing, I'm experiencing, a lot of you are mentally and emotionally, seem to touch a real uh, um, place inside of you that uh, you were uh, glad to get a chance to hear talked about, and I appreciate that. I'm also very grateful to those of you who wrote me to suggest all sorts of ways that I could begin to learn how to uh, do meditation Um my wife's been trying to get me to do it for years, and although I appreciate your notes, probably not going to happen for me personally. But I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate hearing from all of you after yesterday's show. Um, we're going to talk about hunger today. We're going to talk about hunger in Georgia specifically. Before we actually go directly to the problems that we experience in Georgia with our expert panel, I just want to set it in the widest context possible. Um, what really caught my attention and startled me was a New York Times piece I read about a week or so ago, which essentially said, it's not coronavirus, it's going to hunger that's going to kill the most number of people in the year ahead. We've said on this show any number of times that the coronavirus is making even more dramatic and visible fault lines that run through our lives in America and around the world, and hunger and access to food is certainly one of them. Here's just one piece of information from that Times article. The Times reports that already 135 million people had, under normal circumstances, been facing acute food shortages. But the with the pandemic, 130 million more might go hungry in 2020, according to a reef Hussein, who was the chief economist at the World Food Program, which is an agency of the United Nations. That suggests that by year's end, an estimated 265 million people worldwide could be pushed to the brink of starvation. And then we go to America and look at figures from Feeding America, which is an organization that our guests today are well aware of and, and are, are involved with. According to the USDA's 2019 Household Food Insecurity in the United States report, which Feeding America puts up on its website, more than 37 million people in the United States struggle with hunger. In 2018, 14.3 million American households were food insecure with limited or uncertain access to enough food. And the most devastating thing about all of this, I think, is that it's households with children that are much more likely to experience food insecurity. The um, uh, Feeding America website says currently more than 11 million children live in food insecure households. All right, that's our starting point. And now we want to focus on Georgia specifically, where there are significant problems with feeding the hungry here. Uh, and we're going to talk to people who have been doing the hard work of trying to 
extend the food chain to those people. First of all, though, let's welcome Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, regular Thursday a partner of mine on this show. And Kevin, I'm always glad when you're back and we get a chance to talk. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bill. I hope uh, you are too. Uh, it's good to be on the show. As, as I say every week, it's just good to hear your voice again and have that little bit of uh, normalcy. I know that my, maybe a lot of people would yeah. refer to you as normal, but I certainly do. Well, thank you. I feel the same. Um, Let's turn to our experts in the area of uh, food insecurity and feeding the hungry. We're very pleased uh, to have uh, Bill Bowling on the show today. Bill Bowling founded the Atlanta Community Food Bank in 1979 and was the director of the food bank for 36 years until he finally uh, moved on from that position. And and so, Bill, you are the history of feeding the hungry in Georgia. Your your career in, in uh, uh, dealing with that issue uh, is, is extraordinary, and we're so glad you could be part of the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. And uh, who knew 40, 41 years ago that we would need the food bank so much as we do today? Yeah, that's exactly right, and we'll talk about that, obviously. Uh, your your successor uh, in the role of president and CEO of the Food Bank is Kyle Wade. Kyle joins us today as well. Kyle, thank you for being here today. You're really dealing with the problems that the Food Bank is experiencing right now, and, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. But you doing all right? Uh, we're doing great, uh, Bill. I'm here at the food bank, and uh, we're we're moving food out aggressively today to people who need it. And uh, excited to spend a few minutes with you and, and everybody else here uh, on the show. We're also joined by Dana Kraft, who uh, is the executive director of the Georgia Food Bank Alliance. Hi, Dana. Would you explain where the Food Bank Alliance uh, fits in to the uh, overall picture of feeding the hungry in Georgia? Sure. Uh, the, the Georgia Food Bank Association is comprised of the Feeding America food banks that operate uh, regional territories in the state of Georgia. And so um, the executive directors of seven of those food banks are my board, and I work on the stuff they all have in common and want to do together. So I, I apologize, Food Bank Association. I apologize for my incorrect uh, naming of, of your organization. Does, does that mean that while the uh, the the Atlanta Community Food Bank uh, operates from Metro Atlanta. You are uh, working with food banks that cover much of the rest of the state of Georgia. Is that the way to say it? Yes, exactly. Okay, terrific. All right, um, let's do this. And if you all don't mind, uh, because Bill uh, is sort of the granddaddy of the food bank movement here, uh, I'd like to start with him Bill, before you do anything else in terms of, of talking about how the coronavirus is affecting uh, food banks here, let's establish how great the need is for feeding the hungry in, 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 at the, uh, in the metro Atlanta area, and then we'll bring in the rest of the state as well. Well, there's always been a need, Bill, and the food bank was really created to fill that gap between what the public sector can do through programs like SNAP, food stamps, TFAP, summer feeding programs, programs for the elderly. Uh, there needed to be a local organization that both captured unmarketable food 
as well as created programs to produce food. So, um, you know, the need is greater because it's hit us across the board. But, uh, you know, Kyle can give us the exact figure, but probably half the people that come to a community-based organization, we have over 650 of them, uh, over half those people are working. Uh, they have jobs or maybe two or three part-time jobs. So we've always seen that gap. We've always seen some food insecurity, but we have never faced what we're facing today. Uh, so, Kyle, what are we talking about here? How many people at, at, at any given time does the Atlanta Community Food Bank service? Sure. So, uh, Bill, if you go back to like March 10th, before the world kind of changed overnight on us, uh, there were already uh, about 784,000 estimated uh, people, uh, children, families, seniors, uh, in the 29 counties that our food bank serves uh, who are food insecure, meaning that they lack consistent access um, to uh, all the uh, food and nutrition they need to live a healthy life. Uh, and that was, you know, in a very strong economic environment. Uh, what we're anticipating and expecting, projecting now, is that that number of food insecure people uh, has gone up already uh, by 30 to 40 percent. Uh, it's more than a million people now. Uh, by way of comparison, at the peak of the Great Recession, uh, the number of food insecure people in our region uh, was around 910,000 people. So we're, I, we think, well above where we were at the uh, worst point during the Great Recession. Uh, so significant growth in need. Uh, obviously, it's been driven by the uh, uh, big growth in unemployment uh, uh, for starters, uh, but it also uh, relates to those families with kids who are normally in school and are not right now, who would normally have access to school meals. Uh, and so they're having to provide uh, more food with their own resources. Uh, and, and that's putting a lot of pressure on those families. Uh, you have a lot of seniors uh, who are homebound and feeling really vulnerable and uh, were already low income and had, had difficulty uh, accessing all the food that they need. They're facing increased pressure. And then, of course, we've got, I think, a growing uh, homelessness problem uh, that will intensify here over the next uh, uh, several months uh, that's also part of that growth in need. So I know Kevin wants to jump in, but before, Kevin, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, Dana, what are you seeing in the rest of the state right now? Well, uh, in the metro area that uh, Kyle is serving, you know, the increase in demand, the number of new people coming to the food bank network for the very first time, you know, is in the 30 to 40 percent range. But the food banks that are operating in middle and southern Georgia and have largely rural territories are reporting that number much higher. They're reporting up to 60 percent of the people who are coming to their distributions are coming for the first time. Um, and, and those counties also have higher rates of food insecurity, um, whereas statewide the figure for child food insecurity is one in five children. You know, the, the food insecurity for children in a lot of the rural communities in middle and southern Georgia is one in three one in four children. So the fact that schools are not operating normally now and those kids aren't getting their regular lunch meal is a great concern for all of us. 
Uh, hey, uh, this is Kevin. Uh, I'm going to direct this question to Kyle, and then hopefully the, the uh, Bill and, and Dana, you got, you can jump in. Uh, first, Kyle, it's good to talk to you, even even this way. Uh, Kyle and I are I've known him for some time. We were members of the uh, Leadership Atlanta class uh, together. So um, you touched on this a little bit, Kyle, but for for people listening. Be crystal clear about what first what food insecurity means, and then you also talked about you know the the growing number of people and and the ongoing number of people who experience food insecurity. Talk a little bit about who they are and where they are, because I know from our conversations in the past they're not always where and who people think. Thanks, Kevin. That's a, g- a great question. So just in terms of food insecurity, uh, what we're talking about are. Um, uh, families, kids, seniors who uh, it's not that they have no food, that they can't provide any food for themselves. Uh, it's that they um, uh, live with the threat of not always being able to provide the food that they need. Uh, there's a technical way that USDA assesses uh, food insecurity, a number of questions they ask. Uh, but it basically comes down to uh, uh, have you run out of food uh, and not been able to uh, get more food, purchase more food on your own uh, within the last 30 days, uh, 90 days, six months, a year. Uh, and that kind of gauges the level of food insecurity that, that people face where uh, in a, on a routine basis, you struggle uh, to be able to afford all the food that you need. Uh, and what that does for folks is it, um, uh, it puts them in a place where they have to make uh, uh, various kind of trade-off decisions about how they access that food. They have to uh, buy uh, more shelf-stable, uh, less nutritious food. Uh, they have to ensure that uh, they are um, uh, stretching their food dollars as far as possible. Uh, they're going to skip meals. Uh, they're going to uh, eat things that are uh, not as healthy as as. Uh, they would want to because they just have to save their money as much as they can. Uh, and that leads to all kind of health outcomes. Um, uh, they have higher rates of heart disease, diabetes, blood pressure. Uh, it leads to uh, increased expenses uh, related to those health uh, consequences. Uh, it leads to lost income as people um, uh, miss work or lose jobs uh, as they get sicker or as they um, uh, struggle with other uh, uh, consequences of not always uh, uh, having the food that they need. And then that turns into really more challenging trade-off decisions where people have to choose between uh, paying for their rent or mortgage or buying food, paying for medications or buying food, uh, paying for their utility bill or, or buying food. And so uh, what we do at the food bank is we try to stop that cycle at the beginning uh, and ensure that people have access to all the nutritious food that they need, uh, that they have better access to produce, better access to other healthy, perishable items, uh, and that will prevent all those downstream uh, consequences. Uh, the people who are food insecure uh, are exactly as you said, not always who we think. This is a, a food insecurity is prevalent everywhere. Uh, across the state. Uh, In our service territory, half of the food insecure population live in suburban census tracts. You have uh, uh, significant levels of food insecurity in counties like Gwinnett and Cobb. Uh, You have food insecurity in cities like Sandy Springs. Uh, And so it is is fundamentally an economic problem where people 
um, uh, people's uh, sources of income don't line up with their um, uh, expense burdens, and it forces them not to be able to, to buy enough food. So um, if I can jump in here, um, Bill, you established, when you established the Atlanta Community Food Bank, you uh, created a network of nonprofit organizations, uh, churches, other uh, uh, local organizations, food pantries, other nonprofits, uh, all engaged together uh, to fight hunger. Um, you also relied on, an, uh, on a very important network of volunteers to come into the food bank uh, to pack boxes to send out to people, to deliver boxes. My family and I uh, have spent time down there and uh, always were, you know, very knocked out by what a terrific operation it's been. So my, my question, I suppose, is even with a, a network that's been, you know, grown and grown, right now people are sheltering in place, and I'm wondering what happens to the kind of infrastructure that you were able to establish when people can't uh, get out the way that they used to to help out? You know, I think the brilliance of the food bank was the idea that we would get food close to where people lived in a trusting place, often a congregation or a nonprofit group that, that the community knew. And that model has worked for very well for over the last 40 years. But when we have something like uh, coronavirus, uh, to your point, uh, volunteers can't get out as much. We've shut down the volunteer program at the food bank. We've used National Guard folks. We've used volunteers out in the community. But you've always got to pivot. To Kyle's point, you've got to listen to the community and figure out, are there new distribution channels? So an example would be, while kids don't have access to school breakfast and school lunch, which you mentioned affects the families, we've had to create programs to distribute, to put bags of food and distribute it to the families out of the school system because the homeless can't uh, have congregate feeding. You know, at Crossroad Ministries and places like that, we've got to take individual packs of food and deliver them. So there are many examples of how the food bank has both listened to the community, been creative in figuring out new distribution streams. And I would say we're doing that around the state, and each community's got to figure it out. The wonderful news here in Atlanta is that this community is incredibly creative. We're working more collaboratively. We've put more partnerships together than we've ever had. Uh, and I think it makes uh, a great response under the circumstances. Um, I understand we've lost uh, Dana right now, and I know Tom Faust is working to get her uh, back into the mix as soon as she possibly can. So um, we'll keep working on making sure we, we get her back into the conversation. Um, you know, Kevin, one of the things as I, uh, I think about this, uh, uh, Kyle said something really important, and that's this notion that uh, there, we probably have these stereotypical images about who's going hungry in Georgia. And think of it as uh, uh, the poorest of the poor living uh, perhaps in inner cities, uh, underserved communities. But when I hear Kevin Kyle say that they're servicing people in the suburbs uh, as well, it suddenly changes my entire uh, understanding of, of what the situation really is. Well, yeah. In fact, I would tell you that one of the uh, benefits, I, I, I've spent time with Bill 
Kyle and Dana through the years and really learned a lot about uh, what what their work is like. And, and what you have here are three people who have this tremendous dedication to such an important cause and such a basic human need. And one of the things you learn when you spend time with them is they are also masters of logistics and masters of partnerships. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to throw at Bill, I mean, um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you, you, you and Kyle and Dana have accomplished so much along these lines, and your response to the current crisis has been so quick and so I guess the word everybody, uh, you know, wants to wants to use now is that, you know, people can pivot. But, you know, what is it that people really need to know about the key to succeeding in what you do? I think the key, Kevin, is that everybody can do something. They can volunteer, as, as Bill Nugget and his family have done, use over 25,000 volunteers at the food bank on a regular year. Uh, but everybody can do something. The reason that we're good at logistics is because we went to the logistics people. We went to Home Depot. When we had to figure out where our trucks were, we went to Coca-Cola. They got 800 trucks a day out there. So we go to Amazon. So those companies have been very helpful to us, you know, so that we could operate by the same standards and, and, uh, and, and do just-in-time delivery. So it really is when you need an expertise or you need to figure something out, we always look around and say, who's best in class at that work? And we go ask them. And inevitably, we figure out a way to work together. Kyle has taken it to a whole other level because the demand has been there. You know, Bill, to your point about the suburbs, during the last recession, the greatest growth in hunger was in the suburbs. I mean, we had people pulling up have lost their homes, but they still had a four-year-old Lexus, and they were pulling up to the church needing food. That's not the image that we usually think about at all. Uh, let's do this. Um, I want to talk about where things stand right now with uh, 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 the demand for food from the Community Food Bank in Atlanta and across the state. There are partners across the state. Uh and how, how they're filling that demand or how short they are. But let's get a break out of the way and come back and talk more about feeding the hungry in Georgia during the coronavirus. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind uh, today talking about uh, food insecurity in Georgia, especially uh, as the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic has affected the uh, food chain, the supplies uh, to people who really need help from the food banks. Um, let me just, uh, before I uh, go back to uh, our guests, who, by the way, are Bill Balding, founder of the Atlanta Community Food Bank, uh, Kyle Wade, current CEO and uh, president of the food bank, and uh, Dana Kraft, who is uh, uh, the executive director of the Food Bank Association, which deals with the other food banks across the state of Georgia. 
Uh, I'm looking at a report, and uh, you know, D- Dana, maybe you can confirm that I'm talking specifically about Georgia. That's that's on the um, uh, uh, website of the Atlanta Community Food Bank. It says 58, fifty-six percent of client households report monthly incomes of less than a thousand dollars. Twenty-eight percent have faced foreclosure or eviction in the past five years. Among all households served by the Atlanta Community Food Bank agencies and programs, 59% have had at least one member who has been employed uh, in the past year. And it goes on with some other figures that I think, again, are really startling. 76% report having to choose between paying for food and paying for utilities. 43% of those households say they make that choice every month, and 82% say they have to make the choice between paying for food and paying for transportation. It goes on from there. Uh, Is that reflective of what you see across the state, Dana? Yes, it is. Uh, Those numbers track very closely with the statewide numbers as well. You know, people before COVID changed our world, um, you know, there were people struggling, you know, week to week uh, with food insecurity, and, and, and this uh, crisis has sort of brought a whole lot more people, you know, closer to the edge of, of their of their work of of their income. I guess, <laughs> you know, their their ability to to take care of their most basic needs. So, with that in mind, what kind of shortages are you running into? How difficult is it to secure enough food to feed all the people who are turning to you right now? And let me ask you, as long as you got the ball, Dana, and then we'll ask Kyle the same question. Sure. Well, I will say that the, you know, the headlines that are national that use terms like, you know, overwhelmed, I haven't heard any of those words on my calls with the executive directors, and they're checking in with each other on a very regular basis. You know, the food banks in the state have stepped up to this challenge, and they are moving an unprecedented amount of food. And the the spot shortages in, in types of food that the grocery industry are seeing are impacting our network as well. Uh, but I, I, I would uh, ask Kyle to elaborate, but I, I'm really thrilled with the way that the food bank network is responding. Um, in the northern part of the state, um, near uh, three-quarters of their agency network is still operating normally. Uh, we've lost some agencies in the southern part of the state because they're operated by seniors and they are appropriately sheltering in place, and the food banks have uh, done uh, mobile drive-throughs in those counties to, to make up for those distribution figures. But I, I'm really thrilled with, um, with the way that the food bank network is responding and the way the public is responding to support them. Kyle? Yeah, well, uh, Bill, I think um, uh, here in Atlanta, we are, of course, seeing unprecedented uh, demand uh, across our region. Um, uh, but we're also responding really in unprecedented uh, ways. So we've, uh, uh, despite that growth in demand, uh, despite some of the pressure on our food supply that's been created by uh, the closing of restaurants, the uh, run on grocery stores, um, all the challenges around the social distancing uh, that we have to operate in, not being able to use volunteers. Uh, we've been able to grow our food distribution uh, at the food bank uh, by more than 30 percent uh, over the past uh, 45 days. Just last week, uh, we distributed close to 2 million pounds of food in a single week. 
which is about 600,000 more pounds of food in a week than we would normally distribute prior to the pandemic. Uh, and what has allowed us um, uh, to respond like that uh, is, uh, you know, I know Kevin mentioned a minute ago the need to sort of pivot and adapt in a, in a difficult environment, and certainly we're doing that. But what we're also leaning into is our experience, um, our capacity that we've built, um, the um, uh, history of collaboration and partnership that we've been operating with for so many years. Uh, we've been leaning into what we already do well and just doing it more intensively than we've ever done it. So um, that capacity, that collaboration, that experience is what is allowing us uh, to persevere uh, at the moment. Certainly every day uh, for us kind of feels like a prize fight. You know, you show up every day and uh, there's a lot of work to do to get as much food out to the community as possible. Uh, but we're confident that we're gonna be able to sustain this effort. The community's behind us. Uh, there's a lot of government food that will be on the way soon. Uh, and uh, we've got the, the systems and expertise in place and the infrastructure in place uh, to really absorb a massive increase in demand. Kevin? Kyle, I know from talking to you, you know, through the years that the food bank has some very unique partnerships, and you've made reference to a few of them, but some of those are literally with grocery stores in, in an effort to, um, to uh, you know, make sure that food gets used, doesn't go to waste, that sort of thing. It, give, give listeners a little view into that, into how that really works and the sorts of things that go on. I think most of us, when we think about it, you know, uh, think about, gosh, we've got to bring canned food to uh, the food bank or to someplace to support uh you know, helping people, and certainly we do that, but it's just not as simple as that, right? But yes, I think um, many people, when they first come to the food bank, they're kind of immediately um, uh, shocked by the scale of of our operation. Uh, this was when we were in our prior building, which we just moved to a new facility uh, that is uh, two and a half times the size of the building we were in. And in the old building, uh, people would come to the facility and be surprised uh, by the scale of the operation. Uh, today, nobody can come because of the environment, but when they do, they'll be even more surprised uh, if they're coming here for the first time. Um, uh, our uh, scale, uh, you know, if you yesterday, for example, we distributed more than 400,000 pounds of food in a day. Uh, and that food comes from um, a variety of sources uh, that are all significant in scale in their own right. So you alluded to grocery stores. Um, uh, we uh, collect food from more than 500 groceries, individual grocery store locations across uh, the region. Uh, Publix, Kroger, Walmart, we're, we're collecting food from um, all of those individual locations. Uh, we're sourcing food from big manufacturers and distributors that send us things uh, by the tractor trailer load. Uh, we get food from farms. Uh, we're, we're getting about 6 million pounds of food right now uh, a year uh, directly from farmers from their surplus uh, produce that they uh, put out every year. Uh, and we're getting that from all over the Southeast. Uh, we buy um, uh, every year, um, uh, uh, about $5 million worth of food, 
uh, and uh, we uh, get significant quantities of food through federal government commodity programs. So it's a uh, complex and diverse uh, supply chain uh, that resembles a large food distribution company. But what makes the food bank special is not just that sort of big logistics network. What's more important in many ways is the community-based distribution network, uh, our ability to be embedded on the ground in the community, uh, to leverage those relationships in the community, to understand where need is right now today, and to marry that up to that very big, complex, well-resourced supply chain. Bill Bowling? Well, I would just, uh, Kevin, your question about uh, having relationships is key when you have something like a pandemic. You know, you, at the end of the day, we do business with people we know and trust and that we have worked with before. And the food bank has been that trusted partner. So it's very important if you're calling and working with a food company that you can follow the correct protocol, that you can deal with the liability issues, that you can measure the impact of what you're doing, that you can speak the language you know, depending on who you're talking to in the company, in a way that you can move the food and get things done. We also see, and, and we haven't even gotten into this, Bill, the grassroots response. We have, uh, well, a great example, Kevin, the Cox Foundation headed up a group to do hospital workers, and we're doing thousands of meals to frontline uh, workers. We're doing thousands of meals delivered to the homeless. We are actually working with a system now to use Uber and other transportation sources to get food to the homes of the elderly. So all those are based on past relationships. And when there's a grassroots response, we can sit down and have the expertise to know how to move forward. The other part that we haven't also talked about is the role of the public sector. We're coming up on a summer where schools have already been closed only 15, 18% have accessed summer feeding in the past. Very difficult to get kids fed in the past. What we're hoping for is waivers and a, and a great attitude by the federal and state government that we can partner with them, as we've done in the past, and get more kids fed. It's essential that they're healthy let, to start Let me make sure. Let me, Bill, let me jump in because I'm not sure I understand waivers. Why do you need waivers to be involved in a program to feed kids over the summer when their uh, 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 programs for feeding in the schools are, are not operating? Well, I can speak to that, but I'm also going to have Dana and Kyle speak to it because they're the ones kind of negotiating, you know, with state and federal. There's rules coming down to the states, and the states pass those down to us. Oftentimes it's how the food's handled, where we can feed kids, uh, Dana, you might give some examples of how we've worked around the state. I will. Um, the summer feeding program uh, in the past, uh, under regular rules, requires the kids to congregate and to eat the food together in the presence of the site supervisor. And uh, as you probably saw, some great examples of uh, school districts uh, sending meals out on school buses on the school routes to to deliver meals, grab and go meals to kids. You know we want that kind of flexibility over the summertime, and there are national waivers that have been uh, offered, and uh, we are um, encouraging you know the 
the agencies that monitor those programs um, to accept all of them to allow all the flexibilities that USDA is providing nationally this summer in order to feed more kids. If you think about meals being put on a school bus, if, if you can put more meals on the bus and it can stop more places, if all the kids are doing is grabbing the meals and then taking them back to their homes, if they have to get on the bus and eat the meals before the bus can move on, you're not going to feed as many kids on the same route with the same equipment. And so those are the kinds of flexibilities that we're asking for around this summer. There are um, – this is um, – Kyle, there, there are two, there are two yeah, specific waivers. There are two specific waivers that are really important because they're set to expire on June 30th uh, if they're not extended. Um, and it could have a chilling effect on summer feeding this summer if people are still nervous about operating in this coronavirus uh, context. One is what uh, Dana was already talking about, which is the requirement for congregate feeding. Uh, the current law requires summer feeding programs to be operated where kids eat the meal on site. Uh, we've got a waiver right now in place, but that would expire on June 30th. And um, the operators of those summer meal sites might become nervous about continuing to operate if they're required to feed people on site instead of doing a, a to-go type model or delivery type model. The second waiver, uh, and Kevin, I'm, it'd be great for you to talk about this in your paper, is uh, uh, around <laughs> adult pickup. Um, and so there's a uh, requirement by law that the kid has to uh, take the meal. You can't give it to uh, a parent. Um, and right now in a sort of to-go environment, um, we need parents to be able to get those meals and not send kids up to get their own meals at a site and, and go. So having both of those waivers extended beyond June 30th and not requiring these programs to kind of pivot on a dime in the middle of summer uh, is going to be really important if we want to make sure all the kids are fed this summer. Kevin, let me give you the last word before we have to take a break. Uh, well, Kyle, thanks for that time. And I just made a note here. Uh, I've got more for you. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't busy enough this morning, so thank you. Um, But uh, just to be clear, though, normally, uh, you know, in this school environment, the the schools have these meal programs. Do they end when the summer starts, or or some continue, some don't? I mean, Kyle, uh, just make it crystal clear for listeners what the challenge is with kids who normally can be assured of getting food at school as we head into the summer. So we have two different summer feeding programs that operate in the state that are federally funded. There's the summer food service program, uh, which is operated by the Department of Early Care and Learning. Uh, They work with a network. uh, Generally, they work with a network of uh, private nonprofits. So think about summer camps uh, for kids uh, where uh, kids are there all day and they get food uh, at those programs. Um, and then you've got the seamless summer program that's operated by the Department of Education that utilizes school kitchens to produce meals and serve them on site uh, as part of summer school or to partner in other ways with the community to get those meals out uh, into the community. Uh, so uh, those programs are available to kids who qualify by income for those programs. Uh, and uh, the, the challenge is just to make as many of those sites uh, open as possible uh, and accessible as possible to make kids and families aware of, where, uh, aware of where they are so that they can get there and access those meals. 
Okay, I got to jump in because we've got to get to our final break. Dana, let me uh, take a break and we'll come back and give you a chance to uh, talk about that. Uh, I also, though, want to talk about uh, supply chain. Uh, We've heard you all say that you're very uh, so far fortunate that you've been able to fulfill the fill the demands that you had, even with the virus uh, increasing demand. Uh, But I want to know about supply chain. I want to know about our agricultural community, farmers, and whether they're able to continue supplying food. We'll do all that and give Dana a chance when we come back from our final break. This is Political Rewind. Quick program note uh, for you. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be talking to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger about how he is working uh, to make sure we can have a primary on June 9th and the uh, vastly expanded absentee ballot program that we expect will be in place. Uh, His concerns about ballot security. He's going to get some pushback, I think, from Kathy Cox, who was one of his predecessors as Secretary of State. We'll also be joined by Al Scott, the chairman of the uh, Chatham County uh, Commission down there in the Savannah area. So I hope you'll join us for a show about the election in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, before we went to the break, uh, Dana, you wanted to weigh in a bit on feeding students this summer. I did. I want to talk about how difficult it is in rural communities where hundreds and thousands of acres of farmland separate home sites. You know, it is very difficult for those kids who are normally coming to school every day during the school year or riding a bus to school every day in the school year to get every day to a summer site to pick up their meal, even in a um, grab-and-go model. And so we're you know, those, those are the things that weigh, weigh on us as we look to see where the food bank network can fill gaps in those programs. Um, let's, I'm glad you mentioned rural Georgia, farm fields, uh, because I want to talk a bit about supply chain. Um, Politico, two days ago, posted an article, and they're not the only ones to speak to this, uh, in which, and I'll, I'll, I'll read you what the lead of the piece is, Tens of millions of pounds of American-grown produce is rotting in fields as food food banks across the country scramble to meet a massive surge in demand. Politico calls it a two-pronged disaster that is deprived farmers of billions of dollars in revenues, while millions of newly jobless Americans are struggling to feed their families. And then I'll point out that Chef uh, Jose Andres, uh, one of the celebrity chefs in this country, just the other day, posted a a tweet, which we have up on the Political Rewind Twitter, and he shows two very different photographs side by side. One is a massive mound of potatoes that have been dumped in Idaho by farmers who no longer have a market for them, and the other is what's become a, uh, a pretty iconic photograph of tens of hundreds of cars lined up at a food bank in Texas trying to get access to food. All right. Given all that, uh, Bill Bowling, what concerns do we have here in Georgia about the fact that farmers uh, aren't finding markets for their food and to some extent are uh, plowing some of their fields under? Well, I think generally media is just discovering something that's existed for a long time. I think Georgia's done a very good job. We got a grant three years ago from the Woodruff Foundation to build capacity statewide. To build, to have trucks, refrigerated trucks, freezers on farms, 
working with the protocol. I would come back, Bill, to the the simple fact that what we need is leadership. I wish the governor would say to all the different commissioners, and one commissioner has been very supportive is Gary Black, commissioner of agriculture, has been very supportive in in rural Georgia with farms. But the governor needs to say we all need a can-do attitude, and state government needs to figure out with the food bank how to get this job done, get the job done. With that kind of direction, I think there would be a whole change in the conversation. Bill, let me, let me just, Kevin, let me press you a little bit on that. I mean, give a couple examples of what good, like what specifically would happen with that kind of direction or, uh, you know, that kind of attitude around the state. Well, for example, the waivers that we're looking for. We would hope the governor and folks at the state level would help us get those waivers, would know that by working together in partnership, we can get the kids fed this summer. In partnership, we can receive more food. You know, governments just said they're going to spend $3 billion buying food from farmers, right, to support the farmers, and that food will come through the food bank. We won't get that for six or eight or ten weeks, and how it's packaged makes a huge difference. So it's communication all along the line to kind of get out of the way we usually do it to figure out the way we need to do it this year uh, under extraordinary circumstances. Dana, there's a a real irony there for the food banks that you work with in in central and south Georgia that are largely rural communities, many of them farming communities, where uh, you're helping to feed some of the very farmers who do not have markets for the food uh, that they uh, for the crops that they produce. That's absolutely true. Um, we do have a very vibrant farm to food bank program, and we have the Georgia growers donate more than 16 million pounds. That's 400 tractor trailer loads of ugly produce to us every year. So in addition to that program and regional sharing that we do with 33 food banks in the southeast uh, as the sort of heat map and harvest Uh, moves up the seaboard, um, we now know that we're going to be getting some of this um, uh, produce that USDA is going to be purchasing as well. So we will have that fresh uh, produce to share over the the coming weeks, uh, and and we're excited about having access to that food. Um, But you are absolutely right that the the increase in need in rural communities is really – outpacing the increase in need in, in, in the urban and suburban environments. Kyle, USDA has been uh, criticized for not uh, stepping up quite as quickly as maybe some other federal agencies have. Bill Bowling points out Gary Black, the commissioner of agriculture here, has been on top of this. He was on our show the other day, and we talked about uh, all of these issues. But are you, is, has USDA lagged behind in being able to be a real partner for you? I, I would say that that USDA and FEMA and organizations like that that are used to dealing with a physical disaster like hurricane, it has taken them some time to get their heads around what a pandemic emergency is and how widespread the 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 disaster is and how widespread the need is for people who are operating in an emergency. You know, I was uh, asking for FEMA foods for the food banks to to sort of help fill the gap 
between now and when we know we have USDA foods coming. And they said, well, there's no emergency in Georgia because your grocery stores are open. And I and, and my response was, well, but we are the grocery store for people who do not have paychecks, who, who were ordered to shelter at home. And so I, th- I, think, I think they're all – pivoting it's just they're all pivoting at, at a slower pace than than you know maybe we would like them to Kevin uh, hey, Kyle uh, this one for you so you know so many of us are sheltering in place we're stuck at home we're running out of things to watch on Netflix um, I know you've got three <laughs> daughters so I'm sure that this has not been easy for you but people who are out there listening if they want to help you know tell us Tell us something specific we can do along the lines of the work that, that, that the food bank does that would really help, that I could just go do today. Well, look, uh, um, it's, it's pretty simple. So as I mentioned earlier, um, the food bank is really our food bank and other food banks around the state um, have really uh, stepped up our game during this crisis. We're working around the clock. Um, uh, you know, here on site, you know, most many food bankers are not at home. We're, we're out on the front lines getting food out to the community. Um, our costs for doing that are going way up. One of the supply chain things we haven't talked about, Bill, uh, is that there's certainly a lot of pressure on the supply chain. Uh, there's some imbalances in the supply chain around produce uh, and other uh, product categories. Uh, and food banks like mine are buying a lot more food than they normally would. Uh, you know, by four, five, six times uh, multiples. Uh, and so our costs for doing all this work have gone uh, up considerably. And we're, we're, we're blessed with a lot of support already from the community. But for us to sustain uh, this level of support for a challenge that is greater than any other economic crisis we will face in our lifetimes, uh, we're going to need the community to stay with us. So the best thing that people can do right now to support the food bank is to support us with donations. Uh, You can go to our website, acfb.org, to support us. Uh, You can go to the Georgia Food Bank Association website uh, to find out how you can support the other food banks around the state. All right, um, we are we're down to about the last minute of, of the show. And Bill Bowling, I want to turn to you after I thank Dana Kraft, Kyle Wade, and of course my partner Kevin Riley. I, I, you got about thirty seconds, Bill, uh, to sum up in your thirty-six years of experience the kind of people that you have helped, how you have interfaced with them, who are these the faces that you put on these people who food banks are able to take care of. I'm drawing on your experience in, a, in, in the ministry, Bill. Well, I, you know, the great news is that we have a community that steps up. If we would focus on the grassroots support that we've gotten, the creativity, there's a lot of millennials that are creating apps and working. Uh, this community can do this. And if we accentuate the positive in what we're working on, we will succeed. Bill Bowling. Great way to end the show. Thank you all so much for talking with us today. Uh, That's it. We're completely out of time. We're back tomorrow, as I said, with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and more. See you all then.